Well, good morning again, Crosswalk. Thank you for coming to worship with us today. And I just want to do another, send another quick shout out to the band, all the members, all the work that they do to bring together such a great set. So just, a, just another hand. Um, it's always so cool, right? The, the last song of that set, I always kind of go in the back and just kind of get ready to, to come up and speak. And I close my eyes and I just listen. For whatever reason over there, I can hear your voices better. So I can hear the band, I can hear you. And I can't describe the moment any better than just saying it's, it's holy. It's a, it's a sacred moment. There's, we are made for worship. And so when we come in this space and we get to worship, then all the things we've been carrying around with us in the week, all the worries, the stress, the struggles, have a way of just melting away. Um, and we can be in the place we were meant to be, with the people we were meant to be, with the God we are created for. And something feels right. We can't always describe it in words, and, and that's what I felt back there. So thank you for coming and worshiping with us today. Um, I don't know what your week has been like. Mine has been extra crazy busy this week because, as I mentioned in the announcements in the welcome earlier, it is Oregon Conference Camp Meeting. So all of the Seventh-day Adventist churches, if you don't know much about how this works, they all kind of take the Sabbath to come together, to worship, to learn. They, they've been together all week, um, and a lot of a lot of good and crazy things happen at camp meeting. Like people go crazy over this thing we call pronto pups. Like to the point to where like they might hurt someone to get a pronto pup. Um, it's a veggie corn dog is, is all it is. And uh, I've been hanging out this week with the young adults tent, programming every night, service projects during the day. Um, and we had the sheriff of Gladstone, the city where the camp meeting takes place. And there are thousands of Adventists down there. So if Adventists have ever freaked you out, like, don't go to Gladstone today. Um, but that's where <laughs> a lot of people are. Um, and this sheriff had his first ever pronto pup. And he had one, and then he had another, and another, and another. He ate four pronto pups. He took five home with him. He doesn't know that sometimes veggie corn dogs bite back. So I've been praying for him. I hope that he made it through that day. Um, but a lot of crazy things happen at, uh, at camp meeting. If you've grown up in the faith system, you see all these people from your past. You, you see old teachers and pastors, and you, you get to meet your mom's sister's husband's barber. Um, and it's super cool. People make all these connections. But I had an encounter that, this last week that uh, I didn't expect at all. That has everything to do with our sermon today. And so I want to share that with you. Uh, I was, after the service project, I got to go to this uh, lady's house that she, she's not a shut-in. She's mobile and, and that, but she doesn't have what she needs to kind of take care of her yard and do things. So things have just been piling up. Everything was, you know, chest high and higher and dead trees and branches and just garbage and debris. And so we cleaned all that up. We did a makeover for I got to talk to her. Her name was Christy. She had so many stories to share. Um, so I uh, had a good time. But then after that, I went back, and I was sitting outside of the meeting place for the young adults, and I was working on getting all the program stuff and the pieces together um, when this elderly gentleman came up to me. And as is often the case, I kind of recog like I, I recognized him, but I couldn't place him. I didn't know from where. I didn't have a name that popped into my head. And he just had the biggest smile on his face. And he's like, I have been waiting so long to meet you. Okay. Um, and then he said, I've been watching you for years. Sounded a little creepy. 
And then he said, oh, I mean, like, online. I've been watching you online. I've been watching through Crosswalk and through a Bible study that Joyce and I and several of our friends have been doing through the pandemic. And I've been watching through a ministry called The One Project that we're a part of. And, and he said, you know, and I, I just, I, I can't believe I get to meet you this week. And, and the first thing he said then is when I saw you from across the room, my first thought was, wow, you're way taller than I thought. Because I get a lot of times, especially you just see upstage or on screen, people think I'm just a short, stubby, bald guy. I don't know why, um, but that's what, and that's what he told me. Um, and so he said, so I was surprised by that. But then he said this. He said, through the ministry of the One Project, even though I've been a Christian for years and years and years, you all introduced me to Jesus for the first time ever. And my friend, he, he, he went on to say that, uh, he said, my friend Sam and I, he said, you, you guys are my old gentlemen of the gospel. So he didn't really know what that meant. And so he said, well, I mean, I mean you're not old. I said, thank you. He said, but, but you're like my sages. You have helped me get to know who Jesus is better, get to understand who Jesus is more, and you have changed my life. And you guys, that's what this is all about. That's what this is all about. That is what the hours of writing and working and sacrificing and emailing and texting and praying and studying, that's what it is all about. It's all so that we could know Jesus better. So that we could see Jesus more clearly because when we are rooted and grounded in Jesus, it produces fruit in us that changes us and changes the people around us. That is what all of this is all about. And I couldn't be more excited to be a part of this process because Jesus is everything. And this leads us to our topic for today. We are in our third week of our sermon series entitled Deep Faith where we are going through the letters of 1st and 2nd Timothy, letters that were written, they're called the pastoral letters because they're written from the Apostle Paul to his son in the faith, Timothy, not only to help him learn how to lead and guide and care for and grow this church they planted in Ephesus, but it's also trying to help Timothy grow in his own faith and understanding of who Jesus is so that Timothy can take over for Paul when Paul is gone but also so Timothy's faith is deep and can weather the storms that life will throw at it. So that's what this chapter, th th this, these letters are about. In week one, we looked at what faith is, learning to trust in God more, his version of our story and who he is and what he's promised to do for us. We spoke to the principles of a deep faith. Last week, we talked about prayer as the important communication tool for building that trust. Because all important relationships are built on trust, and trust is built on communication. Prayer is our communication with God. This week, we're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3, which begins with Paul talking about elders and deacons, leaders of the church. He talks about the kind of people they should be and the kinds of behaviors they should have. He says leaders should be above reproach, exercise self-control, live wisely, have a good reputation, and so on. But how does a person gain these types of qualities? How does a person become above reproach? Well, external behaviors are motivated by internal values. Outward behavior is a result of inward focus, the fruit of what we focus on. So Paul gives us the answer as to how to live this way at the end of the chapter. 
1 Timothy 3, 14 to 16 says this. I am writing, writing these things to you now, even though I hope to be with you soon, so that if I am delayed, you will know how people must conduct themselves in the household of God. This is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Without question, this is the great mystery of our faith. Christ was revealed in a human body and vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels and announced to the nations. He was believed in throughout the world and taken to heaven in glory. Paul starts the chapter by helping Timothy and the leaders of Ephesus know what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. But to be a follower of Jesus, you must be rooted in the knowledge of who Jesus is, which he alluded to as a mystery. But in this context and in the language he uses, this mystery has been revealed. It has been uncovered. So to understand this mystery of our faith, I'd like to jump to a different passage of Scripture that I think shares with us one of the most powerful one-line statements ever spoken. A one-liner with life-changing implications that can help grow our roots deep into the soil of something eternal. That way we can stand the test of time. So there have been great one-liners in the course of history, lines that made a difference in the culture, that inspired generations, that instilled hope and began revolutions. Things like one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Or today is a day that will live in infamy. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Some memorable one-liners weren't spoken out of good circumstances, but we still remember them. Richard Nixon standing on the plane, I am not a crook. It's my Richard Nixon, you're welcome. There's certain things you just can't say, like, like the other I was going to say was, uh, you know, some one-liners from our favorite stories, you know, I'll be back. You can't say that without sounding like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, other lines, to be or not to be, that is the question. Then there are some of my favorites that have inspired people over the years. I have a dream. Give me liberty or give me death. We could do no great things, only small things with great love. But as good as these one lines are, they pale in comparison to a one-liner given by Jesus of Nazareth, a carpenter who lived over 2,000 years ago. Knowing and accepting the truth behind this one line is what grows our roots deep and produces lasting fruit. So we find the line at the end of the book of John chapter 8. And let me tell you what's happening in this chapter. The chapter is about a confrontation. It's about the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, that are attacking Jesus because Jesus is challenging their story, their understanding of their story. They have a 2,000-year-old story where God chose them to be his chosen and special people. He chose them, not the Babylonians or Assyrians or the Romans or the Greek. He chose the Jews, and they are special and set apart and peculiar. But Jesus was challenging their understanding of this story. So the Pharisees were hell-bent on exposing Jesus as a fraud and ridding their landscape of his influence because they care more about the story than the author of it. The Pharisees don't get their way, however, as Jesus once again surprises them with his wisdom and knowledge of the scriptures. He even seems to know what they're thinking. This is the chapter that begins with them bringing a woman caught in the act of adultery. 
forget the fact that it takes two to commit adultery, but it's the woman that gets brought to Jesus. And Jesus works through that situation. The woman is saved, but the real confrontation has just begun. The chapter continues, and Jesus addresses the larger audience that's there that day. He begins by challenging the Jews with their understanding of the story. Um, And you see, they claim to be children of Abraham. Abraham was the most important figure in their history next to God himself. Jesus claims that they act nothing like Abraham, and therefore their birthright is illegitimate. This is why it's important to know who we are grounded in, because who we are grounded in influences the kind of people we become. Of course, Jesus' words are dangerous because the Jews always carried with them their 23andMe printouts so that they could show their connection to Abraham and their heritage, right? Because that connection to them was paramount. It is what makes them special and unique. After all, in that story, God chose them above everybody else to be his special people. So Jesus challenges their story, and that was a big no-no. The crowd is coming unhinged, enraged. Who does this guy think he is to attack the very core of who they think they are? Well, we're about to find out. The proverbial gloves come off, and the Jews let Jesus have it. They, he say, they say he must be a devil, and worse, they call him an outcast fit only for hell as they invoke their, their most poignant curse word in their arsenal. They call Jesus a Samaritan. According to John 8.37, we see Jesus identify their biggest problem. Jesus says, you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. The Greek word for finds no place is the word koreho, which really in context means that they can't take, they can't make room in their hearts for what Jesus is saying because their hearts are full enough. They are too proud, too arrogant to accept anything else. And so they have no room in their hearts for his words. Again, the Jews have a story and an understanding of how God has worked with them in that story, and they have no room for any other possibilities. And so the confrontation continues. Back and forth it goes. They continue to to invoke Abraham as their father. Jesus says they act more like the children of the devil. Jesus isn't holding back either, but the difference between Jesus' demeanor and words in this is that Jesus is trying to save them. They don't think they need saving. Jesus doesn't care if he offends them. He cares if he loses them. He's trying to break through their hardened hearts. They ask Jesus if he actually thinks he is greater than Abraham, for in their minds, there was no one greater that had ever been born of man than Abraham. And maybe they were right of those born of man. So Jesus, sounding crazier than ever to them, says that Abraham had longed to see his day and rejoiced at the sight of it. What? The Jews think to themselves, Is this man insane? Abraham lived hundreds of years ago. When had Abraham seen Jesus' day? The Jews are certain that Jesus has lost his mind. They retort, you aren't even 50 years old, which to them was kind of retirement age. They say, how can you say you have seen Abraham? As they laugh at the mere sight of it, Jesus calmly stands up. His eyes pierce their souls as their laughter dies down. Something in the air has shifted. 
No one realizes it yet, but what is about to happen could never have been expected, not before, not since. Jesus takes a deep breath. His divinity shines through the veil of his humanity, and he breaks the silence with the most poignant, life-altering, reality-changing one-liner ever, ever spoken. I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. And the world has never been the same. The anger of the Jewish mob was triggered. Jesus had not only spoken the holy, sacred name of God, a name that they tried to avoid ever speaking out loud, even writing it down. And Jesus not only said it, I am, or in Hebrew, Yahweh, but Jesus actually said it described who he was. The Jews' anger boils over as they scream out, blasphemer. They bend down to pick up stones to kill him, which the Allah allowed for them to do. But it wasn't Jesus' time to die. Not yet. And he sneaks away through the mob. Jesus wasn't just another human or a good teacher. He was and is God. Divinity cloaked in humanity. And though Jesus came first from the Jews, for the Jews, he ultimately came for all of humanity. This was mind-altering for the people of the world because their gods and their understanding of how gods worked was that gods were very specific to a group of people. And their gods were specific to a region, and often their powers were limited to a few specific things. But through Jesus, God was breaking into the world for all people. Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, Republican Party, Democrat Party, Green Party, Tea Party, all who party. All are God's creation. All are precious in his sight. Every tribe, every language, every background, every struggle, every story. And this God is not only for all people. He is all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing. He is the one true God. And we must make room in our hearts for his presence, for his word, trusting more and more in his version of our story. For through Jesus, we find the mystery of God, a God who, as Paul said in 1 Timothy 2, is for everyone. But this expanding and all-inclusive view of God did not fit the Jews' understanding of the story. So they had no room for him or for his words or for the God he spoke of and claimed to be. So eventually, the Jewish leaders decide they'd rather kill this man than risk losing their story. The fruit of their focus and of their understanding of that story, a story of a limited God for the Jews only, the focus produced fruit of fear, paranoia, elitism, arrogance, anger and outrage because everything incarnates our focus becomes our fruit the focus of the jews was their story and their understanding of that story and they had no room for jesus the author of it but those who chose to follow jesus into the great unknown produced a different kind of fruit their fruit was love joy peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Why? Because their roots were established in Jesus and the gospel, and the world couldn't take that identity away from them, even if they killed them. 
And it's easy to look back at the Pharisees and think, man, were they idiots. Everything they ever needed was in their reach, and they refused to accept it. How embarrassing. And then I wonder, aren't we in danger of the exact same thing today? Don't we as Christians in North America, and some of us as Seventh-day Adventists, don't we think our vision of the story is so right that we too are in danger of having no Correjo for Jesus, no room for the living, breathing word of God? Are we more in love with the story than we are its author? It's been an interesting journey for me over the last 12 years in my faith. Um, just being a part of a, a faith system where uh, you, you, if, if, if you don't fit a certain mold and you don't look a certain way, you don't act a certain way, you don't say certain things, you become an easy target. And as a part of that target, my friends and I have been asked questions all the time about why are you still a part of the Seventh-day Adventist faith club? I'll tell you one of those reasons today. Because when the Adventist faith tribe started in the 1800s, there was this concept that they put in place called present truth. The idea behind present truth is that we will never have all the answers. We're always going to be learning. It's something that's supposed to keep us humble. And this made so much sense to a group of people who, when they started, they weren't Sabbatarians or Vegetarians or Trinitarians. They were learning all these things over a period of time. And so the hope and dream for that movement was that we would continue to learn and continue to grow and continue to be humble and continue to keep our eyes on Jesus. But it's easy to lose that focus. It's easy to think we've got everything figured out. We have all the answers now. And anything that doesn't look like this is not us. And so we spend more time keeping people out and determining who is in and who is out than we do loving people like Jesus. And so we have to be careful in what we focus on because everything incarnates. We have to keep humble and accept this idea of present truth that the Spirit has so much more to teach us. We'll never have it all figured out. A friend of mine sent me this quote recently that is still hitting me hard, uh, and I thought I'd share it with you today. It's about really what incarnates. It reads like this. Two people read the same Bible. One sees reasons to love, the other reasons to hate. One sees unity, the other division. One finds prejudice, the other equality. One discovers compassion, the other indifference. One goodwill, the other malice. Two people, one book, one book, two views. The book is a mirror, the reflection is you. The book is a mirror, the reflection is you. Everything incarnates. This is why our focus our obsession must be on Christ and nothing else, for he alone is the solid rock on which we stand and all other ground is sinking sand. Scholar and theologian N.T. Wright, it's another one I love. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be human, look at Jesus. If you want to know what love is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what grief is, look at Jesus and go on looking until you're not just a spectator, but you're actually a part of a drama which has him as the central character. Be obsessed with, focus on, learn about, walk with Jesus. Honestly, friends, 
It is this journey in my life, digging deep into the story, the humanity, the divinity, the teachings, the life of Christ that has led me here to this moment in this room with all of you. I've told some of this before, but in 2010, I was struggling. My faith was struggling. My mental health was struggling. My professional life was struggling. Everything that I was looking at, I was just having a hard time. And a group of my friends got together, fellow pilgrims of the faith. We all need our community and our faith, our, our partners in the journey. And as we all talked, we realized that our problem wasn't external. It wasn't that we needed to change jobs or circumstances or anything else. Our problem was internal. And that problem was that Jesus wasn't big enough in our own lives and Jesus wasn't big enough in our church. And so we started having these conversations and we wondered if other people were having the same kind of conversation and we decided to call some people together and, and to continue that conversation. We gathered in Atlanta, Georgia in 2011 with about 180 people and we started talking about Jesus. Two days talking about Jesus. And at the end of those two days, I went up to my hotel room on my knees, tears streaming down my face, and I said, Lord, I am sorry I haven't made it all about you, but I want that to change right here, right now, in the, this room today. And over the next days, weeks, months, and years, as we continue that conversation in the ministry of the One Project, my heart, my life changed. Jesus became bigger in my life. He became everything to me. And I started having more conversations with other people. My ministry was all about Jesus. My life, I tried desperately to make about Jesus. Crosswalk is an outgrowth of those conversations. And I have to tell you this. Well, I'm going to tell you the journey a little bit because, and again, some of you know this, some of you don't, but it was in 2000 and. 20, in the spring of 2020, when I started, I knew that my burden for the city of Portland was growing, as was my wife's burden. For people that I had grown up with, family disconnected from church, former college students that I had pastored that were disconnected from church, and I knew that God wanted us to be involved in something in this city. And I called my friend, Pastor Tim Gillespie, and I we started talking, and, and the next thing I knew, I was on a plane from Dayton, Ohio, out to Portland, Oregon, and we met with a group of people at Joyce and DJ's house. And we started dreaming about what would it look like for Crosswalk to plant a church here in Portland. And so during some of the most difficult times in recent history, with the pandemic and forest fires and social and political tensions, we planted a Jesus community. And here we're 10 months in, and there is so much energy and excitement. And I have to say this, that this is nothing about other communities I've been a part of. I have been blessed to mostly grow up within the Seventh-day Adventist faith tribe. And as a part of that, I have had good experiences, good communities. I know that's not everybody's story. But nothing against those previous experiences. I have to say I have never felt more alive in my faith until we started this movement right here in Portland. I've never seen more excitement. I've never, never felt more momentum that we're actually moving somewhere. We're going somewhere. We are not stagnant. We are not just managing to climb. There is an excitement in the air that you can't put words to. The sacred echo of the Holy Spirit is in this room and in these walls and in our conversations. And God is on the move. And we have to hold on and keep our eyes fixated on Jesus 
all throughout the way so we're not distracted, so we never think we have it all figured out. We have to be on our knees in worship, talking about the story of Jesus, sharing about his love and teachings, and being obsessed with Jesus. That is our focus, to do what Paul wrote about when he said, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. The term fixing our eyes on Jesus takes the assumption that we're focused on something else, and we have to return that gaze to Jesus. So whatever you're focused on today, whatever issues of of faith or doctrine or beliefs or whatever's going on in your life, in your home, we have to take our eyes off of those things and onto Jesus and let him do his healing work inside us because he is our alpha and our omega, our beginning and our end and our in-between. So let us be a people that is obsessed with Jesus, digging deep into the reality of who he is, of his story, his teachings, his life, death, and resurrection. Let's go through scripture every page and see Jesus, because when we do, we will be changed. We will be aware of his spirit in this space, and if we could hold on to him, we will be on what promises to be the ride of a lifetime. So let us never stop talking about fixating on Jesus, for he is our everything. Let's pray. Oh, Father God in heaven, thank you so much that you have started this community of faith here in this space. Lord God, I don't know what all you have planned for us. I don't know where all we're going to go, what all is going to happen, but I am so excited every week we come together and I hear someone's story. I hear how someone is coming to see you in a new way. They're coming to realize that whatever their past was, whatever hurts or pains or scars or wounds or maybe just a lack of relevancy, they're coming to see that maybe Maybe there's something more out there. Maybe there's a group of people that want to be so obsessed with Jesus that we can go from this place and love really, really well in our homes, at work, in our neighborhoods and communities, wherever we go and whatever we do, we would be little Christs running around and, and helping people know you better. Thank you for that call. I pray for your blessing over this room full of people. I pray for your spirit over this room full of people to invade hearts, to invade minds, to bring healing, to bring hope, and help us go from this place, God, and turn the world upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We love you so much, Lord God. Help us in our weakness and our failures. Forgive us of our sins. Help us to see Jesus more clearly. We pray this in your precious and holy and beautiful and powerful and resurrected name, the name that is above all other names, the name of Jesus. We pray these things.